This is the first in a series of talks I'm going to be giving, developing this idea of sovereignty in Celtic myth and in the cousin cultures in the other Indo-European cultures as well. And we're going to begin with Ireland. And it's really an island that the, the idea of the goddesses of sovereignty, sovereignty embodied in a female figure, that's where that idea really comes from, from the study of Irish literature. Medieval Irish stories have a much more explicit set of sovereignty figures as compared to Wales, where we still find sovereignty figures, but they're never explicitly called sovereignty figures. Whereas over in Irish uh, stories, they're very often explicitly called the sovereignty of Ireland, usually. Sometimes there's a suggestion that they're sovereignty figures of specific kingdoms or territories within Ireland. But generally speaking, the obvious sovereignty figures are sovereignty figures of the whole of Ireland, and they represent and embody the sovereignty of the whole territory. And therefore, in many ways, the power of one king, because, of course, sovereignty figures are always women who are married to kings. And the fundamental idea in Irish tradition is that the king marries the goddess of the land. And the goddess of the land represents the sovereignty of the land. And this is how the king becomes the sovereign ruler of that sovereign territory. I'm sure that you're all very familiar with that very basic idea. So we're just going to be looking at one Irish story in this session and another Irish reference. And then I'm just going to be talking about how we can interpret those Irish sources and what they tell us about the sociological aspect of sovereignty. What I mean by the sociological aspect is that part of the myth which reflects actual behaviours in society, what people actually did in the past in relation to the myth of sovereignty. And from that sociological description, I'll then interpret the myth and what it may have meant for those people. I'm assuming that most of this is going to be relatively straightforward for most of you, especially if you already have an interest in Celtic mythology. The sovereignty figure is one of the better known types of figures that we come across in Celtic, lit in Celtic literature. Back in the 9th century, we have a very interesting text called uh, Bala in Skoll, which roughly translates as the vision or the poetic ecstasy of the phantom. It's very often called the frenzy of the phantom or the phantom frenzy. But what's really meant by frenzy in those translations is this idea of a poetic ecstasy, a vision, a revelationary moment in, in the poet's life. That's what's really meant in the translation frenzy. But I think vision and poetic ecstasy is far better, personally. This text could be as old as the ninth century. Um, and the translation I'm following here is by Miles Dillon, uh, The Cycle of the Kings. You can find this translation online, I believe. I found this one in the National Library. But I'm not going to be using the whole translation. Uh, I've cut some bits out just to condense it so that it's a, a bit shorter for us to go through. But it's a very interesting story. Uh, it's one of these stories where the king travels to the other world, essentially. It's very similar to a few other stories in the Irish tradition. 
One day, Khan, who is, of course, the king in this story, was in Tara. Tara, of course, is the seat of Irish kings. The king of Tara is essentially the high king of all Ireland. Early in the morning, he went up onto the royal rampart of Tara, before sunrise, together with his three druids and his three filly, his three bards or poets. It is onto the rampart that he used always to go, and he chanced upon a stone beneath his feet and trod upon it. The stone cried out beneath his feet, so that it was heard throughout Altara and throughout Brega. Then Con asked his druids why the stone had cried out. What was its name? Whence had it come and whither would it go? And why it had come to Tara? The druid said to Con that he would not name it to him until fifty-three days had passed. When that number was complete, Con asked the druid again. This special fifty-three days, it's signifying that this is special knowledge. What Con has asked his druid to reveal to him is esoteric, secret knowledge that the druid probably has to meditate upon, has to probably do some research, but also has to speak to the spiritual realm concerning this special information. That's what's implied in those 53 days. And it must be very significant information because it took a whole 53 days for the druid to discover. Then, after 53 days, the druid said, Foil, that is essentially destiny, is the name of the stone. Now, some of you uh, will already have recognised this as the stone of destiny. The stone of destiny, which is sometimes in Scotland, sometimes in Ireland, essentially in the culture of Gaelic and Gaelic-speaking peoples. There's plenty of other references to this stone uh, elsewhere in the Gaelic tradition. It is in Tara that it will remain until the Day of Judgment. So this special stone, which cried out, is the Stone of Destiny, and it will remain here until the Day of Judgment, which is, of course, in the in Christian cosmology, it's the end day, it's the last day of, of the whole of this present cycle of existence. And it is in that land that there will be a festive assembly for as long as there is kingship in Tara. And the ruler who does not find it on the last day of the assembly will be a doomed man in that year. So essentially, the druid has found out that this special stone will bring about or will be an important feature in a special ceremonial event or assembly that's going to happen every year in Tara. And if he doesn't find it on the last day of the assembly, he will be doomed in that year. So if the chieftain or the nobleman doesn't find it, he's doomed. Foil cried out beneath your feet today, said the druid, and prophesied. The number of cries which the stone uttered is the number of kings that there will be of your race until the day of judgment. Now, we're not sure if this means that there's only going to be one king because the stones only cried once in this story, or if in the future there'll be more opportunities for the stone to cry. We're assuming so. It is not I who will name them to you, said the druid. The druid knows that this stone will mark out every king that's going to follow Con. Also, the druid knows that he's not the one who's going to tell Con who these successive kings are going to be. 
essentially setting us up for the second half of the story, where someone special is going to tell Con who all these kings are. Then they saw a great mist around them, so that they did not know whither they were going because of the greatness of the darkness which had come upon them. So, of course, this is a feature of other stories in the Irish tradition. We can think of stories concerning Mananan MacLear, for example, uh, often associated with mist. We also find it in the Welsh tradition. It shows that the supernatural powers are making themselves present in our world. It essentially demarcates the change in realms. The mortals are now entering the supernatural world. They heard the noise of a horseman coming towards them. Woe is us, said Con, if he brings us into an unknown land. So Con is afraid that this horseman's going to take them into a strange land and they're going to be strangers and lost. Then the horseman made three spear casts at them and the last cast came to them more quickly than the first. He is setting out to wound a king, said the druid. Whoever makes a cast at Con in Tara. Now this feels like a test because then the horseman ceased his casting and came up to them and bade Con welcome and invited him to come with him to his dwelling. So this feels like a particular type of challenge. This is perhaps a guardian figure to the other world who is testing these mortal men to see if they're brave enough, if they're wily enough, if they're cunning enough, if they're supple enough to avoid his spear casts. We don't know which one it is, but fundamentally it's a type of testing of these mortals as they enter the other world. Again, another regular feature of uh, Celtic storytelling. Then they went on until they came into a plain. And a golden tree was there. There was a house there with a ridgepole of a white alloy. In some translations, this is a white gold. 30 feet in length. Again, this is a feature of otherworldly tales, adventures to the other world, especially in the Irish tradition where the, the houses and the buildings are all silver and gold. They went into the house and saw a young woman there. And a crown of gold was on her head. There was a silver vat with hoops of gold around it, full of red ale. There was a dipper of gold on its lip and a cup of gold before her. They saw the phantom himself in the house, before them on his throne. So there is a spirit or there is um, an otherworldly presence here also. Not just the girl with the golden crown and the vat, but also some type of demigod, let's say. There was never in Tara a man of his size or his beauty. So we're assuming that he's a giant. On account of the fairness of his form and the wondrousness of his appearance. He answered them and said, I am not a phantom nor a spectre. Now, there's obviously um, a little bit of confusion here in the text because the storyteller just told us and there was a phantom there and now he's claiming he's not, but there you go. Sometimes these texts are a little bit garbled. I have come on account of my fame among you since my death. And I am of the race of Adam. My name is Lu, son of Aethlu, son of Tienamas. This is clearly Lu, 
who appears in several other Irish tales. But in those tales, he's not specifically of the human race. He's, of course, of the uh, Tua de Danan. My name is Lu, son of Aethlu, son of Tienamas. This is why I have come, to relate to you the length of your reign, and of every reign which there will be in Tara. And the girl who sat before them in the house was the sovereignty of Ireland. So this is a very clear example of an Irish storyteller specifically using this symbolic figure. And it was she who gave Con his meal, the rib of an ox and the rib of a boar. The ox rib was 24 feet long and 8 feet between its arch and the ground. So a massive chunk of meat there. When the girl began to distribute drinks, she said, To whom shall this cup be given? And the phantom answered her. When he had named every ruler until the day of judgment, they went into the phantom's shadow. This is peculiar because it's as if the phantom embodies the space and the mortals are coming out of the space, are passing out of this otherworldly realm by passing through the phantom, which is interesting. And that's after the phantom has fulfilled the expectation in the story, which is that Con will hear every name of every king which, which will follow him. The vat and the golden dipper and the cup were left with Con. And hence are the stories, the phantom's dream and the adventure and journey of Con. Now, what's not so explicit in the story here is that the girl is serving, perhaps symbolically, every successive ruler, every successive king of Tara after Con. And this is something that we find uh, in other stories in the Irish tradition. Uh, we need only think of the figure of Maeve, quite an important character in those stories. And Maeve is the daughter of Conan of Kuala. Now, plenty of people have pointed out that Maeve, as a name, probably means something like the intoxicating one. And we can compare Maeve in Welsh, um, which means um, mead. It doesn't mean dead. <laughs> that should be an M. Maeth. There's too many Ds in it. That's the problem. We can compare Maeth, which is Welsh for mead, and Methu in Welsh, which is uh, drunk. So Maeve, obviously from a similar Indo-European root as Maeth and Methu in Welsh, meaning an intoxicating drink, essentially. Now, Maeve, we find out that she was wife of the king's of Ireland, nine of them in succession, suggesting that their kingship is dependent on their marriage to her. And then in a relatively rare poem, we also hear that no one will be king over Ireland unless the ale of Kuala comes to him. Now, of course, Maeve is the daughter of Conan of Kuala. So unless someone drinks the ale that's brewed in the region that Maeve comes from, they won't be king, suggesting again, not only is marriage to the sovereignty figure important, but receiving the special drink also, the ceremonial drink. And then just a, another reference there at the bottom. Great indeed was the power of Maeve over the men of Ireland, for she it was who would not allow a king in Tara without his having herself as a wife. 
And you can find all of the sources there in that great book, Celtic Heritage, by the Rees brothers. So to summarise, we have two sources here, but there are actually several other sources that we could mention from the Irish tradition, which talk of a sovereignty figure who is essentially the symbol of the territory that the king must marry to gain power. And this sovereignty figure is also associated with a special drink. Now, in both instances, it's an ale, but Maeve, her name also suggests that it could be uh, a more refined drink such as mead. We're not sure. An intoxicating drink, at least. It's quite straightforward to give a sociological interpretation of these sources. There clearly was a ceremony in medieval, even perhaps in ancient Ireland, where a noble woman would represent or perhaps even literally embody the sovereignty goddess, the sacred feminine who represented the territory itself. And that noblewoman would perform a ceremony with the man who would be king of that territory. And part of that ceremony would be the serving of a special drink, the serving of ale or mead or perhaps a braggot or perhaps even a wine. But from that sociological understanding, of course, we can reach a mythological understanding also, which is that the the king and the sovereignty figure embody particular sacred values in the ceremony. So as well as the noblewoman embodying the sacred feminine, we can guess that the king embodies the sacred masculine. He is an embodiment of the warrior elite. He is an embodiment of the political traditions of the people of that territory. And here, of course, we find the very basic binary relationship that we find in many of the Celtic stories, where we have a man representing political power and a woman representing natural abundance in the land. And the marriage of these two results in the healthy life of the territory. What's interesting for us here, of course, is that there appears to be an actual description of the actual ceremony. So in mythological terms, what does the drink represent? Well, in many ways, it's perhaps a symbol of the best of the land and its abundance. It's the best produce of the place. It also alters the mindset. It alters the consciousness of the person drinking it. It's a mind-altering substance, essentially, the drink that's been given to the king. In the Welsh tradition, we find figures such as Taliesin becoming the sacred drink themselves, becoming the substance that can alter the mind of the one who drinks it. We can also think of the mead offering in terms of the warrior elite itself. So in poems such as the Godothin, where the mead offering or the mead payment from the chieftain to the warriors suggests that the chieftain 
has taken a vow of loyalty or an oath of loyalty from the warriors and the warriors have agreed to perform a specific act to go fight in a certain battle, basically, on behalf of the chieftain. So the sacred drink is in the middle of that relationship also. It's really a drink by which you swear oaths, as much as a drink which alters your perception, which makes you feel happy and merry and joyous and celebratory. I think that's an important part of what we're looking at here. We're looking at celebrations, perhaps marriage celebrations, aristocratic marriage celebrations, where we have these two symbolic figures, we have the symbolic drink, and we have the witnessing of the ceremony by the people. Because it's this ceremony that will confer good health and prosperity upon the land. Now, later on in this series, I'm going to be developing some of these themes, some of these ideas. We're going to look at a few more Irish stories. We're also going to look at some comparable Welsh stories and also stories from elsewhere uh, in the Indo-European tradition. We might also look outside of the Indo-European tradition to see how things are done elsewhere on the planet also. <laughs>